Welcome to the last episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Before I go and do ayahuasca for the third time, or I guess technically for the ninth time, but my third time going. Um, this is an intro to a podcast that doesn't exist yet. Uh, I'm planning on doing a Instagram live one of these days before I leave uh, so that I can give you guys um, some content to play with while I'm gone because I don't know when I'm going to record the next podcast given how things go. Um, but yeah, this episode is going to be a recording of the Instagram live that I'm going to do on Instagram that hasn't been done yet, uh, but the lives tend to be a lot of fun and dope shit comes out of it because I get into flow. There's something about knowing that there's a bunch of people listening in real time that adds a little bit extra pressure that brings out a little bit more of the sauce and it creates flow. And the more that we can experience flow in our lives, the more that we're going to feel that we're satisfied with life. Like it's really interesting but there's this cognitive psychologist that I'm really getting into who uh, basically believes that the reason why humans um, basically started doing really interesting shit about 160,000 years ago uh, is because of uh, shamanistic practices. And he thinks that shamanistic practices were the precursors to getting people into flow and that when a human is in flow, they have a cascade of insights and that being in flow actively upgrades your cognition to seek more insights and that that essentially is what creates geniuses it's what allows you to solve really complex and interesting problems and one of the major focuses of my life for the last 10 to 11 years is how can i get into a flow state today and instagram lives are one of my ways of doing that um, so yeah, this is a podcast introduction for a podcast that doesn't yet exist, but I know will exist. And then it's probably going to be fire. I mean, if, if I'm being honest with you, as always, if you want to support the podcast, uh, get on my newsletter at arigasi.com. I got two journaling courses on there that you can check out and send me some motherfucking prayers through the ether because I'm going to be going into an initiation ceremony. And as always, thank you guys so much for your attention. Um, it means a lot and I don't take it for granted. I love you and please enjoy. What it do fam. Uh, I am a week away from doing my third trip with Aya and my producer Graham said that we don't have any podcasts ready and I don't have the energy to be doing a podcast. So I was like, we'll do a live and then we'll save the live and then we'll make it a podcast. So this is why I'm back on. You guys asked some really motherfucking good questions <clears throat> and I'm excited to get into them. And, you know, as always, I truly am deeply appreciative that I even get the chance to do this. Um, knowing that I have a group of people that want to hear my ramblings and, uh, Hear my stories makes me braver and has me going and doing stuff like this. So thank you. <clears throat> First question is, 
What does it mean to have recurring dreams about walking and then all of a sudden your legs give out? So one of the things to connect to is that dreams will often play on idioms in the language that you speak. And so having your feet swept out from underneath you could be referring to love. Um, also symbolically, not feeling stable can be a reflection that there is something that is happening in your life that's making you feel like you're falling on your ass. And so the really interesting thing about how dreams work is if you hold the image from the dream and you ask yourself, what does this make me think of? Or if you just hold it, your psyche, which is the same thing that dreamt the dream, will offer up the idea or the image that most closely resonates with that image, and it will answer the question for you. So uh, good luck on that. What is the foundation of your intention sitting with grandmother this time around? Um, so the reason I said yes to this experience was because Aubrey asked me if I wanted to go, and this would be the first time that I would have gotten to sit with him. Uh, we haven't done ayahuasca together, so I was just an absolute fuck yes. But I didn't know what my intention was. And when I have a hard workout and then I stay in the sauna like a couple of minutes longer than it feels like I can, and then I take a cold shower afterwards, whatever comes through when I'm in that cold shower, I know is like the most authentic and vulnerable and true thing that's currently alive for me. And two or three days ago when I was in the shower, the download that came through is my intention for ayahuasca is to ask ayahuasca what story she would like me to tell humans. And so my intention is to go there and ask her what story she wants me to bring home. Because <clears throat> when I really connect to who I am and what I do, I don't see myself as a coach. I don't see myself as an influencer. I see myself as a writer, but specifically a storyteller. And it feels like what I'm interested in is asking ayahuasca, <clears throat> what can I do for her? What can I do for her? And that my gift is telling stories. And so I'm just going to ask Mother Ayahuasca, what story can I bring home for you? We'll see how that ends up turning out. <laughs> <clears throat> What are you looking forward to the most in this experience? Um, the first thing is that just to be in that type of potent and sacred medicine, because the amount of things that you have to change in your life to even go do it, it's such a pattern interrupt. And one of the things that I find is um, it's probably the greatest pattern interrupt that I have in my life. It gets me to change the way that I eat. It gets me to change the way that I spend time with other people. It gets me to change the way that I microdose maybe a little bit too much. And um, it's one of the only times where I leave the country to not go do work. And so all of those things don't even take into account the medicine. And I love and I look forward to most creating these like massive changes in my life so that the years don't just zoom by. Like one of the things like older people will tell you this all the time, you know, you're gonna be 40 before you know it. 
a function of that time of your life just going by so goddamn fast is often a reflection that you're just in the same patterns for years. And the thing that I look forward to the most when it comes to ayahuasca is just how dramatically it creates this change in my patterns that allows me to like feel like I'm breaking up my years. So they're not just five years don't feel like one year. And I know that the big thing for me that I love the most is also taking the time to write myself the story afterwards. Like the way that I integrate is to tell myself the story and to write it to myself. And it is um, truly one of my favorite things to do is to tell myself the story of these tremendous experiences. And also I'm gonna get to hang out with all my motherfucking friends. Like, I've never had the opportunity to do something like this with a group of 20 people who I know deeply already. And that we're gonna get to do something profound like that together is gonna be incredible. Have you ever lost your sex drive for too long after a breakup and did you do something to get it back? I wouldn't say I've ever lost it for too long, but I absolutely do lose my sex drive when it feels like whatever my primary relationship is, when it feels like something um, awful or bad is happening because it creates like this feeling of sickness in my stomach and that when I feel that, uh, don't really have erections. Um, But I've never felt it last too long. And what I find like truly the best way to dance with any of these feelings is to give yourself the space to feel it. And you will naturally, like you don't have to do a fancy technique to feel what wants to be felt. What you have to do is use your mind to find out what are the ways that you avoid feeling. And we all have a plethora of coping behaviors that we use to not feel. And so mine might be workaholism. Mine might be Uh, eating a bunch of food to kind of numb my body. Uh, Mine might be, yours might be drinking or doing other extracurricular drugs that aren't psyche enhancing. But to become aware of what your coping patterns are and then just simply don't do them. And then naturally the grief will bubble up. You feel the grief and then you can fuck again. Hmm. It looks like a question got deleted. Won't let me show it. Okay. What elements does a community need to lose or gain to become the best possible expression of game B? Um, I think one of the things that we are missing in our culture right now so deeply is humility in what we believe we know. So one of the things that I talked about at the summit that we did a couple of weeks ago for Fit for Service is that there's like three types of conversations. There's the type of conversations that you have with yourself that you can hone through meditation and journaling and doing types of therapy. Then there's conversations that you have with intimate others. And this is best alchemized through something like nonviolent communication. And that's where you are talking to another person who you spend a lot of your time with and you guys are trying to work through, what are your needs? What do the two of you believe and what it is that you two would like from the relationship? Then there's a type of conversation where it's two people talking about something that neither of them have 
direct experiential knowledge of. And I call this beyond the veil conversations, but it doesn't matter what you call it. When me and my friend are talking about what's happening in Afghanistan, if neither of us have been there, we are both talking about something neither of us actually have direct experience of. And if we could just start with, talk, with being able to agree, okay, we're about to enter into a conversation game where neither of us knows. We do not know. We do not know. Can we talk about it together in a way where maybe we learn something? And this is just not happening. Most people believe that whatever they think is going on outside of their direct experience, they think it's almost like a part of their body. And if you don't agree with it, you're attacking their body. And if you don't agree with theirs, they feel like you're attacking them. And then it instantly becomes this contention where you two are basically fighting over words and we're all experiencing this with our families. Because someone in your family doesn't agree with what you think about COVID or the vaccine or whatever. And those conversations usually unconsciously devolve into you and I are just attacking each other and we aren't learning shit. There's this idea from the Greeks where there's two types of brotherhood. There's phyla nikea, which, is, which means the love for victory. And this is when people are obsessed with and competing to win. It's great if you're on a sports team, but if you're in conversation and the spirit of the conversation is that you two are in love with winning, you're not going to learn shit. Then there's this thing called Phila Sophia, which is a brotherhoodly love for wisdom. And this is the spirit of you and I are talking together so we can become more wise, <clears throat> so we can learn more. And you can only have those type of conversations if both of you begin with, I don't know. I would love to learn more through talking to you. I think this is one of the most critical things for us to figure out how to do in order for us to create communities that can exist in the type of complexity of information that we have to deal with the massive problems that we do have. Because while you and I argue shittily with all of our biases and confirmations and ignorance about what the vaccine's doing, the machine of civilization is continuing to destroy the environment in a way where our grandchildren's grandchildren might not be able to drink the water. That's happening. And I don't say that to like scare or to make you start to become frantic, but it's to remind you that we have real problems that need to be solved. And the way that we solve them is going to require us learning how to talk to each other in a way that we weren't taught how to do because our parents did not have to deal with the complexity that we live with now. And we've got to figure this shit out. I'm going to try to help. How do you escape the victim's mentality? So there's quite a few ways to look at this. One of the ways to escape the victim, so what's interesting is to even say escape, is to kind of bring in the energy, and victim's too strong of a word, but to escape implies that you have to run from as opposed to how can we alchemize, or how can we harness, or how can we transform, because that implies you are a causal agent 
who has the ability to do something to this thing. And that's a part of whatever the opposite is of the victim's mindset. But a really practical thing that you can do is you can get into flow. Psychologically and technically, when you get into a flow state, you don't even have the part of your brain that can judge itself operating. The self-critical, history-making, self-judging part of the brain deactivates when we enter into flow state. So if you can find a way to get into flow, you will necessarily and technically not be in the victim's mentality. And the most satisfying type of lives are lives that are orchestrated and engineered to give you more flow. And so figuring out what gives you flow. Sports are a great way to get flow. Sex is a great way to get flow. Running with a little bit of cannabis is a great way to get flow. Uh, there are books on how to get into flow. There are all sorts of videos on YouTube that you can watch for free to figure out how to get into flow. But getting into flow is an absolute 100% success rate about how to get out of the victim's mindset. The other thing is um, basically cultivating competence. And I think that cultivating competence is actually the root of creating self-love. I think there's all sorts of mantras and things that you can do with your mind to try to hypnotize yourself, to love yourself. But I think that we are wired to develop self-love when we acquire competence. And what competence is, is basically, there's a change in the world I want to make. I witness myself do the actions to be able to make it. So you are competent enough to wipe your ass, assumedly. So when you shit, you want to get rid of the residue. So you take a piece of dead bark that we've turned into paper and we scrape it against our ass and you fucking did it. You are competent to that degree. Most of us have huge goals about what we are trying to do in the world, but we don't know how to make the change in, we, in reality to bring about that transformation. And so if our goals are beyond what we are currently capable of doing, it will create tension in us. And one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself is to read just one or two books on the science of habit change and really learning what we know about what works to change our own habits. And one of the keys, pick one thing at a time and make it as small as you need to make it so that you can begin today and you can succeed. So an example would be, if you want to be someone who can read for two hours a day, but you haven't read a book in 10 years. If you try to read for two hours a day, you might be able to fucking grind it out for a couple of days, but then you're not going to feel great one day and then you're not going to do it. Then you're going to feel like you failed and then you're not going to feel that energy again for a couple of days and the year goes by and you haven't done it and then you set it again for your new year's resolution. That doesn't work. What does work is if you set a goal of I am going to open a book and read for one minute. And if I want to read more, I can, but my goal is one minute. And once you do it for one minute, take a moment to congratulate yourself, like to become aware that you just achieved that goal. And then the next day, set a goal for two minutes. What they find is that the level of improved difficulty that will keep you most likely to get into flow is to increase the difficulty of the action by 4%. And so, of course, if you're starting with a page, I wouldn't say read a page and 4% uh, of the next page. But once you get to the point where you're reading for like 20 minutes, break it down into 4% increments and then do it every day. 
And like what I love, what I used to do when I was first starting to reprogram my habits is I got a big ass whiteboard that was a calendar and I got a fat ass red marker and I would write down my implementation intention, which is a way of phrasing a goal that increases your chances of doing it by 300%. And it's, um, I will do behavior A in situation B to achieve goal C. So what that could look like is you write down an implementation intention of, I will read for at least one minute to become someone who reads one book a year so that I can flex on my friends at parties with quotes or whatever it is for why you're doing it. <clears throat> and then every day you do it, I would write a big ass red X on that calendar. And I would see <clears throat> the red X's growing and it would give me this extra push. And I did it for meditation. I did it for working out. I did it for reading. I did it for actually writing content. It's incredibly powerful. We are designed to feel better when we are achieving the goals that we have set for ourselves. Like, it doesn't matter what the spiritual books tell you, you are wired because it got you through surviving in the savannah because we are hunting creatures. You are wired biologically to feel better about your existence <clears throat> if you feel like you're making progress on your goal. So choose dope goals, but choose them small enough so you can start to create momentum. And then you're going to start to learn, whoa, I can actually change shit. I can actually improve my life and improve myself. And once you taste that for the first time, like it's really hard to convince yourself that that's not possible to do it again. And then once you do it like three or four times, it's kind of like, holy shit, is this the matrix? Am I Neo? And then you got to deal with a whole new set of problems about not getting too inflated. <clears throat> All right, that didn't pop up. How do I go from having intellectual knowledge to the embodied gnosis, seen or felt knowledge? So what's interesting is um, there's two ways to feel about this. But the first thing to feel into is that the way our brain is created, uh, you very likely have the embodied knowledge way before you're able to articulate it. So one way to feel this is that if you have an insight, like if you generate a new idea, my understanding of how our cognition works and how our spinal cord is structured is that if you have the, in, the insight, it's because you've already embodied the knowledge and that the last thing that happens is it becomes conscious. But if you read something and you're like, oh, that's a really cool idea, but you can feel that you haven't embodied it, what I've done and what I recommend is generate a practice that is your best guess that embodies whatever the thing is that you read. And so a really easy example would be um, if you know and you keep reading that gratitude is like one of the things that like all the people that you admire, they practice every day and it really helps them navigate their mental health, but you don't feel grateful like beginning the practice of writing down every day the four or five things that you are grateful for. Also, what most people don't talk about is the research on gratitude finds that most of the benefit from doing it 
is to take some time to write out or think about or feel into why is that thing in your life? So it's not simply saying I'm grateful for my dog. It's like writing down I'm grateful for my dog and then like feeling into how it came into your life and why it is that it creates like that feeling inside of you. But that if you do that every day, you might not believe it, but eventually you're going to get to a place in your body and it might take weeks, might take years. And it probably won't take years. It'll probably take weeks. But you will get to a point where it's going to be a default for you that as soon as you start to feel like you're cascading into a pessimistic worldview, you're going to be like, wow, I'm grateful for the fact that I can even breathe right now. I'm grateful for the fact that my stomach feels healthy. Like one of the things that fucking makes everything feel terrible is <laughs> like if I have to fart and it won't come out and you get that compression of gas in your gut, it feels like the world is hopeless and that God is dead and that no one loves me. Like when my gut is fucked up, it feels like nothing matters. And so whenever I'm driving in my car and I'm worried about what the next thing is, like I literally did this the other day. I was worried about this amazing event that I have going on tomorrow. And I was worried about the ayahuasca trip that I'm taking a week from now. And I'm in my car and I'm thinking about all these things that I'm worried about. And I just have this moment where I'm like, I can feel that I'm going down a spiral where I'm feeling into everything that's not right. But my body is healthy. I'm in this beautiful car. I see these beautiful hills. I'm on the way to my work meeting where I get to hang out with some of my best friends. This thing that I'm worried about on Sunday is because I was accepted into this amazing group of powerful men and we're there to learn and do hard shit together. And that I'm worried about going and doing the most profound medicine I've ever done in my life with a group of people who I love. And, I, and the fact that I even have this opportunity is something that I would have begged for years ago. And like, I had to say that out loud to myself in the car. This was three or four days ago. And it's incredibly humbling because one of the things to connect to is that you have evolved. One of your core programs is to conserve energy. And so anything that's going right you are programmed not to notice because you don't need to waste your finite energy on shit that's already working. You are programmed to pay attention to things that are not working if they become obstacles in your life because that's really important to solve. So because of that, we are designed, if we don't consciously try to intervene, to overlook everything that is going right. And if we don't intervene with our conscious mind, we are only going to pay attention to what's not going right because that's what is useful to spend our energy on to try to fix. And so that's an example of how you can make that an embodied knowledge. And really, the simple answer to this question is whatever you want to learn, do. Do it. If the idea can be expressed as an action, that's a practice. Practice it. Fucking do it. Uh, a really powerful one is like, we always hear it, like, do the thing that you're afraid to do. If you create a personal practice where for the next month, whenever you feel the call to do something that's exciting, but you're afraid to do it, then you have to do it. If 
you weren't running a program like that before you started that practice, your life is going to absolutely transform in the next month. Like three years ago, almost four years now, um, I spent most of my life using my brain to convince myself not to do shit that I was afraid to do. And then I had a really powerful experience that kind of woke me up and I was like, I'm going to do the shit that I'm afraid to do. Within a month of that time, got the job at Onnit, um, had great sex for the first time since my relationship ended like a year and a half ago. Um, I did something specific with my car because I'd gotten into a car accident and I was afraid to drive and I fucking drove. My life completely transformed. And it's because I started to do the thing that was a cliche before, which is do the shit that you're afraid to do. So the answer to that is fucking do shit, you know what I'm saying? Okay. Damn, it's doing this weird thing where it won't. Uh... Ooh, this is a juicy one. Okay, what are my thoughts on the vaccine? Um, I've touched on this on a couple of stories ago, but basically here's where I'm at. I'm in a bubble where most of the people around me, uh, they deeply care about liberty and sovereignty, and they believe in the health and our ability to heal ourselves. And the fact is, they're all pretty fucking healthy. So they don't have the same um, fear that I think a lot of people have about COVID-19. When COVID was first coming onto the scene, everyone in my community was very clearly highlighting the sloppy thinking of the mainstream media when they were reporting the uh, um, harm of COVID. And so I was paying attention. And then once the vaccines emerged, before we had any data on the vaccines, this same group of people, which are really all my friends, I fucking love them, they automatically saw it as bad. And my disposition is um, because of the history that I understand with pharmaceutical companies, um, I don't trust them, but I also was like, I don't know. As reports started to come out about how bad the vaccine was, the thing that my brain saw from what my friends were doing is, damn, it feels like you guys are doing the same thing in response to the harms of the vaccine as you were accusing the mainstream media of doing of the harm of COVID. Like one of the things that I'm trained in and not even greatly trained, just a little bit of training in is how we have evolved to deceive ourselves to justify how we feel and that we're super resistant to taking in new information that would change how we feel about something. And we really have been just gathering data and stories to confirm how we have felt since we were kids or teenagers. <clears throat> so my intuition is that the that we clearly do not know the efficacy or we don't know the long-term safety of the vaccines. It is clear if you trust the science that's coming out. And I think if you don't trust the science that's coming through mainstream, not even mainstream, through highly accredited journals, you have to have some really strong claims. And almost no one that I know who uh, questions that validity um, has done the work to become a to become someone who understands science enough where it feels like 
they're um, from a place of informed consent, dismissing what I think is probably the most powerful way of seeing beyond our own confirmation bias that we've ever created in the history of recorded civilization, which is science. That's a long way of saying, I don't think the vaccines are as bad as um, people who think they're terrible are, which is most of the people who I know. And I don't think that they're as safe as they're being put forth by the mainstream media. I for sure do not think that they should be compelled. I think that that only galvanizes the people who don't trust it. Like if you have to, like there's this idea um, in like dynamic systems theory. And it's basically no matter what system you create, if one system has to compel action and the other one doesn't, the one that has to compel action will always underperform the one that doesn't have to compel action because it's such a waste of power and resources and energy. I don't think it should be compelled, but I also don't think that if you get it, you're destined to like become, I don't think that it automatically means that something bad will happen to you. And I know a lot of people who are in this uh, space that me and my friends are in, who it seems like they create a nocebo effect on themselves if they feel like they have to get the vaccine and they go get it and then they get sick. And I've been around psychology and psychedelics long enough to have kind of an intuitional feel on when something feels like the placebo or the nocebo effect. And that doesn't mean that it's not true, but it means that the mind through stories is creating a response in the body that I've seen people who I know like make themselves sick by getting the vaccine because they've had stories about it being bad. Like my understanding, and I'm not a doctor, but I do trust my intuition on this because I know what I've put myself through to learn the things that I do know currently, is that if you start to feel something within minutes, that is the motherfucking placebo slash nocebo effect. Um, but I digress. I am not an expert. Um, I don't pretend to be. I don't claim to be. My intuition on this is if you are someone who is susceptible to dying from COVID because you have comorbidity, you probably should, but I don't think you should be forced to. And if you're someone who um, does not have the comorbidity associated with people who die from COVID, I think that there's less of a um, call to try it. But also a report or a study came out a couple of days ago where it does show that it seems to reduce the spread, not get rid of it completely, but that people who are vaccinated seem to spread it less than people who are not. I haven't looked at that study directly. But if that's the case, it does lend itself to an interesting moral question for the people who don't need to get it, um, who it's not a threat to them, but who also don't trust pharmaceutical companies because the motherfucking track record for pharmaceutical companies and vaccines is not good. And it's not conspiracy shit. It's not hidden shit. It's in the motherfucking court systems. It's judicial documents. It is out there for you to go experience and to go find out. Uh, their track record is not good. But I think the core, it should not be compelled. And um, most of the people that I know who have a really strong anti either side 
are probably falling into confirmation bias and it would just deeply improve their life and the conversations they have with everyone if they were willing to read even one book on cognitive biases. Also, I'm not an expert on this shit, uh, but I will fucking talk about it. I had a heroic dose of mushrooms and it led to a bad panic attack at peaking. How can I get, and then the question cuts off, I imagine you're asking, how can I get past that? Um, Okay. So, um, a panic attack on one level is when the, okay, where do I even start the thread here? So, anxiety and excitement physiologically are identical but it's the sense-making apparatus of the world that interprets the energy in the body as being anxiety or excitement. And from my understanding, if the interpretation of the world is, I know what to do with this energy, it's excitement. You know, like if you're about to go play a sport that you've been playing all of your life and you still get nervous, like you know that you're likely about to fucking crush it because you know what you're going to do. But if you're getting really nervous and you're about to do something for the first, or if you're getting a lot of energy in your body and you're about to do something for the first time and you have no idea how it's going to go, your brain is going to interpret that as anxiety. The raw sensation of it is your body is creating energy. And it's the story that you apply to that energy. Now, the thing about a heroic dose of mushrooms leading to a panic attack is almost... Certainly. One of the ways to think about it is you're constantly generating thoughts. And you could think of thoughts as like psychic movements. And if you haven't been training your body for a long time and you start to do weird movements, you might like pull a muscle. But if you load 600 pounds onto your back and you start doing weird movements, if you get out of alignment even a little bit, you could fucking break your back. I think that same analogy applies to uh, psychedelics and high doses of psychedelics. And so what I mean is, if you're in a high dose of psychedelics and you have a weird thought, whereas if you were conscious and you have a weird thought, maybe you would just like make your face flush. Like if I start to think about something on my to-do list right now, I might get slightly red in the face. If I'm on five grams of mushrooms and I start to think about my to-do list and then I start to think about, oh, I haven't texted this person back. And then my mind starts to spiral into they're somewhere and they're mad at me right now. And then depending on what your weird set of beliefs are about how the world works, you might think like, I'll give you a deep insight into like what's going on with me or, or how my mind works. Like if I was peeking on a psychedelic and I wasn't focused with my mind and my intention, and I was just allowing it to get sloppy, what I would do is I would begin to go down a rabbit hole of, well, what is the pattern in me that makes me not text that person back? And then I think about like, what happened to me in my childhood that would make me not respond to that person? And then my brain would start to create this really interesting possible reason why. And then I'd start to be like, oh my God, what if I... What if something happened back then and I can't remember? And then I'd spiral into fear. The ultimate check to that 
is, at least for me, has been doing meditation, specifically Vipassana, where the entire intention of the meditation is to bring my awareness to my breath. And that whenever I feel myself getting lost in the sauce, I bring my awareness back to my breath. And that when I'm in a psychedelic experience, like I know this is going to serve me when I am in Costa Rica doing ayahuasca in a fucking week. When I feel myself starting to spiral out into one of these what if stories, it's an invitation to come back to my breath. And so how you would get past this is like, I wish I could give a different answer, but from what I understand about the nervous system right now is the way that you get past it is you go back to the boss that you died at and then you don't die. And so what that would look like is, and I'm not, I'm not actively recommending this to you. I am answering this authentically, but this is not advice. You know, I'm not telling you to go do this is what I'm saying. But what I would do is if I got stuck somewhere in the psychedelic experience, it's like I got stuck at a movement. And because I feel called to really learn how to be in that space, the analogy would be I'm really called to learn how to move every joint in every direction. I would purposefully train how to be in that uncomfortable state. And then I would have to go back there until I could do the movement. And so for me, what that would look like is I would write out the trip report to myself. I would really dig into the nuance of whatever I was thinking or believing I was experiencing during the hardest part of that trip. I would really sit with that. I would allow it to mold me as I worked on writing it. And every day I would practice how to meditate how to bring my awareness back to my breath with the intention of in a couple of months with a sitter who I've shared the previous story with, I told them what my intention is, I would go do it again. And I would go be in that storm and just allow it to be a storm. Because like the thing that creates a panic attack on the, in the psychedelic experience is that something is arising in the psyche and then you're adding to it. You are unconsciously adding to it. And if you don't add to it, it can get all big and crazy, but it eventually will pass away. It's like when a, like we generate thoughts all the time. And the thoughts that you basically agree with are the ones that like grab you and then you go down this thought spiral. But like what meditation teaches is that you can just see the thoughts Notice the thoughts, breathe while the thoughts do their thoughts, and then the thoughts eventually go away. And um, that's what I would do. Also, a really powerful mantra that I do when I'm in the stickiest part of a psychedelic experience is just love, 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 love. And what I mean when I say that is it's basically um, I accept and I embrace. Like I, I surrender, I surrender love, and it's gotten me through the gnarliest motherfucking experiences. Can the soul heal the body or does the body have to heal itself in relation to other bodies? Both. There's a bass nectar song that I love, and it's the mind heals the body, heals the mind, heals the body, heals the mind, heals the body, heals the mind, heals the body. 
And um, we, so one of the biggest lies that we have downloaded, because it's a useful lie at a certain level of reality, is of cause and effect, of Newtonian physics, of A creates a stimulus on B and then B reacts because of it. But living life, organic life, biology is not simply cause and effect. It's what's technically known as a dynamic system. And dynamic systems and Newtonian physics do not um, properly combine. And so you are not A causes B. You are an ecosystem. And an ecosystem is every node in the ecosystem that can do anything is influencing all the other nodes in a way that's creating an entire environment that's then feeding back on all the nodes. Like we are soil and plant, not abstract piece of object hitting other abstract piece of object inside of a vacuum. And so your soul or your mind has the ability to like, check this out. If you close your eyes and you imagine that you're gonna make yourself some lemonade and you see yourself grabbing a lemon and you feel its texture in your hand and you really start to feel what it's like to hold that lemon and then you cut into it and you can almost smell the fragrance coming off of the lemon and then you cut a slice again and then you bring it up to your mouth and then you see yourself bite into that lemon. My mouth started to water. I'm not eating, but my mind and the ability to visualize created a biological response. Like I can still feel my shit creating saliva. I told, I got my body to produce a biological event through just thinking about it. That's a proof of concept. You have the ability to create psychic atmospheres in your consciousness that inform your body how to react. Like I can invite each of you, what's the most embarrassing thing that you've done in the last year? Like, did you fucking fall on a date? Did you say something completely wrong and stupid in a meeting? Whatever it is, like if we started to really give time and space for you to think about it, you would start to produce a chemical reaction in your body associated with shame or guilt as if it were happening right now. Um, Zach Bush, the MD, who has three different medical degrees, I don't know how the fuck you do that. His entire center that studies cancer, basically what he boils it down to is if you can get the individual to experience bliss, that is the most effective way to heal cancer cells. And he, that, that's an easy way to explain what he has reams and reams of science to back up. So the mind or the soul can heal the body. But also, the number one predictor of early death is if someone reports that they are lonely. It is more deadly than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. It is more deadly than um, being an, an alcoholic. It is more deadly than living in a place with high air pollution, is to report that you feel lonely, is to feel that you feel lonely. 
We are social creatures. We have evolved to be in relationships. There's a great quote by someone, I forget who it is, but it's um, a human in isolation is not a human. Like what makes us human is our connection to other people. And um, it can both kill you and heal you. Like the number one predictor for being obese is if your five closest friends average out as being obese. The number one predictor for being of healthy weight is that your five closest friends average are of healthy weight. Um, so it's both. I'm stepping deeper into my authentic self every day, um, but I lack the level of discipline that I desire. What are your tips? So there's different levels of this discipline game. Um, one, and the joke that I want to make is if you want to injure yourself in the next couple of weeks, go start to follow Goggins, uh, David Goggins, and then just follow his advice and you'll be injured in a fucking two weeks and then it'll, it'll be great. Um, but the joke is, I think discipline is the same as cultivating competence, which cultivates self-love. And the invitation would be to get any book on how to do habit change. Just start with one book and then use the science that we have learned for how to change our habits to create your own discipline practice. What I love to offer people is instead of seeing it as a discipline, you can see it as devotion. That resonates with me way more. How can I devote myself to the things in my life that I love? And my devotion to other people might look like discipline. Because I'm devoted to my writing, I might say no to a party the day before. And so people at the party are like, like they might see it as me being disciplined, but really what it is, is it's an act of love for the thing that I'm gonna do in the morning. And I know that I want my full faculty and honestly, I don't want to be withdrawing from a poison. Like this might not be a popular opinion, but alcohol is a poison. And when you're hungover, it's because you're going through withdrawals of clearing out and trying to clean out a fucking poison in your motherfucking body. Um, and so I think I answered this question pretty deeply when I talked about how do you basically get out of the vi victim mindset. And I think it's through cultivating competence. And it's the same thing as discipline, but I like to call it devotion. You know what I'm saying? Um, someone asked, am I trying to ball soon? Graham, yeah, as soon as you come back, let's fucking hoop. <clears throat> Eric, what keeps you humble amidst your constant growth and ascension? All the love. This is an interesting question because on one level, there is a part of me that has never been humble and will never be humble. And I'm constantly trying to contain that part. Then there's a part of me that is completely terrified of ever not being humble because when I read Greek mythology growing up, the number one sin was when a human thought that they were greater than a god. And so pride was the number one sin that you could show in Greek mythology and the gods would fuck you up. So there is a part of me, um, like my entire life up until recently, I've, I was the largest kid. I was like... At the top of the class, I could fucking out-talk. Um, people liked me. I, I felt like I could fucking, like, rule the world. 
But I also read Greek mythology when I was really young. And there was a part of me that was like, if you're arrogant, and arrogant is so close to my name that it fucks with me all the fucking time, is that if you're arrogant, the fucking gods will destroy you. And so I have these two poles where there's this part of me that thinks that like I'm above averagely competent and I feel uncomfortable even saying that, like it's making my fucking body hot. And then there's this part of me that's terrified of uh, pride because they, that part of thinks that God will fucking smite you. And while those two tensions hold, um, the stories that I've cultivated are basically like, I know in the chorus of my heart that what I want most in this life is I want to be competent so that I can help people. I don't give a fuck if my name never appears in any type of press or any type of fucking headline. If I knew that I became incredibly competent at helping people heal and I was a good father, I would feel like I fucking did it. I fucking crushed it. Um, And one of the things that Aubrey has done really well to reflect to me is that if you're going to truly become who you could be, you're going to have to know what it feels like to have power. And I also had this really powerful experience where a couple of months ago, I was um, like on a vacation with Aubrey and some of, of our friends. And I met this older man who I had never met before. And he was in his like mid forties. He had created and sold big companies. And he kind of had like a fatherly vibe to me. I think he was actually like 50. And after a couple of days, he told me that uh, he got a download about me when we were all doing medicine together and he wanted to tell me about it. And so he brought me away from everyone. And he was like, um, he said some personal stuff, but that the gist of it was, uh, you're the smartest dude in this room and you're being too humble. And if you're going to really be what you could be, you've got to get over whatever this thing is that you have about if you're not humble to the point of being meek, that you're doing something wrong. Like, we want you to talk at the table. We want to hear what you have to say. You've earned the right to do that. So stop this thing that you're doing. And he said it in a way where it fucking landed in the core of my core. So the long answer is there's a part of me that's not humble. There's a part of me that um, is afraid to not be humble, but there's also a part of me. And all you got to do is have like one really good psychedelic experience where you interface with the infinite. And there's a part of me that is so humbled and will never be able to not be anything but humbled that all I have to do is remember what it felt like to interface with eternity the first time I did ayahuasca. Like, there is a thing. I don't know what you call it. If you use the Jungian lens, I would say that it's an archetype, but it's like the archetype of eternity. You could call it the God of eternity or whatever. But there is something that I've experienced a couple of times on psychedelics, where if I just remember what that thing feels like, it humbles me in a way that brings me to tears. That um, <clears throat> eternity, eternities for eternity. And you're, it's not even a speck 
it, it, it can't be measured in the response to uh, eternity. That like everything that you do, it's just like, yeah. Like all, my favorite poem in college was Ozymandias. And if you guys aren't familiar with the story, there's this traveler going through the desert and he comes upon like the debris of what he can't really tell but he sees the base of a statue and on the statue, it reads, uh, I am Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my work and despair. And the traveler looks up from that inscription and just sees dust. It's just a desert. And there's something about that poem that fucking just hits me right in the part. That's not humble. It's like the Ozzy's, the Ozymandias in you dog is going to be dust. So then what's the point? And I think that the point is to help people suffer less because we are all bound in this absurd thing that's hard. And I think that you can do it in a way where it reduces the suffering for other people. And um, yeah, eternity humbles me. Ooh, this is a juicy, ooh, it, I was, this was a juicy question, but it didn't pop up. So the question was, are affairs ever justified? And the first thing that came up for me is um, the way that question is worded gets in the way of the question itself. Um, has an affair ever been justified? Well, who's justifying? The people in it? I'm sure the person who got cheated on is like not justifiable. And the person who did the cheating, they always justified it. Like almost every person in history who has ever cheated or had an affair uh, has a justification for it. Um, I think that like the root of it is if you practice authentic and honest communication, you literally cannot be cheated on. Because if that authentic desire arises in the other person and you guys are both honest and authentic, you, you can at least work with it. Of course, there's a bunch of nuance here, but I think the answer is um, yes, it can be. And also, uh, if you lie, there is no justification. Um, you just got to eat with the fact that you fucked up, period. What is your vision for the next year? What does Eric want to create? Man, um, I know what I want to do is I have like five different ideas of courses that I want to make. Like I want to make a dream course. I want to make like a conversation course, like where I teach people how to have hard conversations. I want to make a course about how to teach people how to create like a Dharma practice, like a routine um, that helps them create whatever it is that they're meant to do. And I also want to create like a, like a course, like a productivity course. The vision that I have is I would like to just put all of that into one fat ass course and teach it like it's a college course online and just be, you know, like the Dharma essentials or the fundamentals of Dharma or, or whatever it is and have it be like a four month thing where I treat it like it's a fucking college class. And like, 
As many people as can show up on the platform that I use can be a part of it. I give assigned reading, I give tests and blah, blah, blah. And I want to just do one thing. That's my like work thing. That's me giving something to people at scale that also helps me grow in doing it. Um, but that's a lot of shit to put together. Um, I really like the idea of having like a single thing. That's the thing that I offer through my like scalable business. And then I do fit for service. And then the real thing that I want to be doing is I want to write this fucking book, but I got to create the space in my life where I can do that. And um, so that's something that I want to do. And a year from now, I want to be deep in the writing process where I'm writing every day. I'm tracking this story that I'm trying to tell. And I feel like I'm making progress on it. Um, and the other thing is I want to feel healthy. I want my body to be dope. I want my diet to be dope. And I want to be having awesome orgasms. That for sure is some truth. All right, well, speaking of sex, what does good sex look like from the divine masculine perspective? Uh, I don't know if I know how to answer this question. Um, I think, you know, like it's so easy to project all sorts of shit onto both the divine masculine and the divine feminine. But the core of it is I think um, the divine... I think an a unarguable aspect of the masculine is boundaries, but also um, like unconditional love. Like I can have love for you and put you beyond the boundaries if it's not for the good of the kingdom. And so I think when it comes to, and then also like speaking the truth, like to actually, like there is something that's fundamentally active about speaking because it condenses everything that could be said into the thing that's actually said. And so if I took those two things, what I would say is um, complete, authentic communication. Like, what will make sex the best if the two of you can fucking talk about it? Like, can you talk about what you don't like? Can you talk about what you like? Can you talk about what you want to try? Can you talk about what is maybe scary? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I also think having, like, really I think what makes for the best sex is that both people, maybe more, are... Uh, listening to each other, feel safe to voice and act on what they want, and they all have a clear understanding of how to express themselves if a boundary is crossed. So it's almost like we clearly know what will happen if a boundary is crossed, and we can, so we know what the boundaries are. And then we trust everyone inside of it that we can express what we want. We can act on what we want with, you know, whatever level of consent feels like it doesn't get in the way. And there's also honoring. And that I feel safe. I feel safe. My genitals feel good. And I know what it will look like if a boundary is crossed. And I think that that makes for dope shit. Also, the book, She Comes First, is essential reading for all men. How do you develop enough trust in the self to go after what your heart truly wants? It begins with faith. Faith will have to come before trust can come if you haven't done it before. And so what that means is um, if your heart is calling to you, 
there's a great techno song. Listen to your heart when it's calling for you. I don't know if that's even on beat enough. That's not quite my gift. But you don't get to pick what your heart wants, which I think is an incredible thing to really feel into. Like, I don't get to pick what I'm interested in or what I desire. It picks me. I think there's intelligence in that. And so if your heart is calling you to do something, but you don't trust it, run the faith experiment. What I have found in my life is the moment I took that first step and that first step had to happen with faith. The moment I did that, life was like better. I was surprised. I was like, whoa, what? And then I did it again and life got better. And I was like, whoa. And then after I did it like the third time, then I could trust it because it happened three times. But at the beginning, you can't trust something that you haven't done. That's what faith is. Faith is basically the assumption that if I do the right thing, it's going to work out. And you can feel what the right thing is. So what I would invite you to do is run the faith experiment. So we're at an hour. I don't know if this thing will cut off at some point, but I'll keep going for a little bit and we'll see how it fucking plays out. No, that doesn't make any sense. Hold on. Can you gen talk generally about why you do these yearly Aya trips? Also, I love you, brother. Okay, so I try to do ayahuasca. So the way that I think about it, I read Stealing Fire by uh, Jamie Wheel and Stephen Collar. And one of the things that they talked about is basically what they call hedonic calendaring, which is intentionally choosing when you go deep into a ecstatic experience and that the more we're in ecstatic experiences in balance with our 3D lives, if you do it right, life is better. And I try to do one, ext one ecstatic experience a year that's like a week long. And it just happens to be that most ayahuasca retreats are between a week and two weeks long. It involves, like, it takes like a month out of my life. And I love that because it takes like two weeks to really get into the energetic space to go do it. Then you go do it. And that takes like a week. And I always leave the country to do it because it creates this really clear boundary for me that I like. And then it's like two weeks of integration. And it's such a big event that like, ripples and echoes out into my life for fucking months to come for six to nine months and the reason i do it or the reason i started to do it and now it just kind of has its own momentum but the reason i started to do it is when i studied psychology more when i was in my early 20s i realized all the great people who have ever all the people i've admired have either been put through or have put themselves through hard initiatory experiences like boot camp is or basic training is a type it's one of the only type of initiation rituals that we have left in our culture going to college is trying to be but it doesn't really know how to be an initiation ritual i am i i will put myself through initiation rituals to help become more of the man that i want to be and it's like my soul does it for me um 
The first major one was when I first found psychedelics. I just had this like obsession where I had to do it every week. I don't recommend that, but I did it every week for like two and a half months. And I wrote a trip report every time afterwards to like help myself integrate what was happening. I wasn't doing it in a party setting. And then a couple of years after that, my next big call was to write three pages by hand in this fat ass journal every day until the journal was full. It took me three months. And I did it every day. And some days I fucking did not want to do it. But it transformed my life. And then when I started working at On It, I had this call where it was like, I'm going to work every day. And I worked every day, uh, every Saturday and Sunday for probably over a year. And it changed my life. And, um, you know, one of my now is like, ayahuasca says, come back. And I come back. But I think it's super important that if you want to, if you want to be an unordinarily, if, if you want to be unordinary, you have to do unordinary things. One of the things that absolutely we are designed to flourish through is initiation rituals. And so either find safe, safe is the wrong word, find the right one for you or fucking create your own. Do you think that you should be fully healed slash love yourself completely before entering into a relationship? This is one of my favorite questions, um, or this is one of the most important like obstacles that I see in the spiritual community that, that I think needs to be talked to over and over and over again. You are not something that can be healed fully. That's the wrong understanding. I think the metaphor that resonates the most with me is you are a motherfucking jazz song. And sometimes you're way out of balance. And when you're way out of balance, you're going to resonate with shit way out of balance. And it's going to lead to more chaos and, you're, and you can't get back to that core note. And then there's times when you purposefully come off of the core note to create tension and fucking like, like makes your face do that thing when the beat drops and then you bring it back and then you give yourself a release. And like, that's the beauty of a fucking good jazz song. When it comes to a relationship, there is no, I'm fully healed. And now from my fully healed place, I will be with this fully healed person and we will just levitate into the fucking sun and become gods or whatever. But I think that the core of the question is, if you have a fundamental, unprocessed wound from the past relationship, if you haven't done your work to excavate your 50% of the responsibility of why the relationship unfolded the way that it did, you are likely going to play out that unresolved lesson in the next relationship. So I think the thing that this question is trying to get to is first, it is a fucking illusion of being fully healed. Like, let that shit go into the wind. But I think what this question is really asking is, um, how do I know whether or not I've done the work needed to be done from the previous relationship before opening up into a new relationship? And I think the core way to know is if you really feel into your ex, is there gunk? Is there fucking stuff in your body? And if there's fucking stuff in your body, 
you probably got, you probably have some grief and some processing to do about that relationship before it is responsible to open up yourself to a new relationship. But if you can feel into your body that your relationship with your ex is like peace and equanimity in your body, even if you haven't healed your eating disorder or you haven't healed the fact that you sometimes fucking love blow on a Friday night or you haven't healed the fact that you still seek validation from older men because your father wasn't there for you. You can go into a relationship and it's not irresponsible and it's probably good for you. Um, I think the core thing about how to process that feeling in your body when it comes to how you relate to your ex is learn how to grieve. There's a book called The Smell of Rain on Dust, which is just a collection of beautiful grief practices that you can do. Like, we are a culture that is in denial of the fact that we're going to die. And the way that we've responded to COVID is actually a great reflection of how afraid we are of death and how we live in this weird illusion that if we're just safe enough, we'll never die. And that people who start dying... Like we like put them inside of buildings that look oddly like prisons. Like there's fucking like cells and it's drab and it's away from where everyone's going. And everything that you see on TV is like impossibly young and possibly attractive people. No one on TV is over the age of 50 unless the commercial is about selling you something for an ill person or trying to get you on a medication or some fucking sleep pillow. Like, we're just in such denial of death. And to be in denial of death also means that we, that we are in denial of grief. Because grief is the proper response to death. Grief is the evidence that something you have loved is no longer here. It's actually the act of celebrating love that is now gone. And we're so bad at it. And... When it comes to a romantic relationship, like the way we are wired, you don't get to fucking help it. You're going to do it regardless is that when you're with that person, especially in that like first year when the fucking neurochemicals are just pulsating through you is you begin to build a life in your mind about the future that you have with them. And it really is like a psychic appendage. It's like a fucking arm. Like the future that you are unconsciously and uncontrollably creating with this person in your mind is real on some level. And when the relationship unfolds in a way where that future is not possible, it's a death. Like some, it's like someone in your psychic tribe has just died. And what we do is we just pretend like it's not a death. And what's worse is that we're in a culture that if you report feeling like someone in your tribe has just died, they might give you pills to numb the fact that you feel that it's even unfolding. I don't think that that's the way. And I really think that one of the greatest gifts that we can give ourselves is a space where it feels safe to weep. And that's the beautiful thing that psychedelics do. It's like, I know it's a good trip if I'm fucking weeping. And sometimes I don't even know why. Um, That feels like the way to end this uh, hour and 12 minute stream.
Um, I'm going to go weep. I know that there's always new things to weep about. I've lost my voice from doing this live, and it was fucking worth it. Uh, I really appreciate the quality of the questions that y'all ask. Uh, I am so fucking honored that I have this opportunity to talk with y'all like this. So thank you. I love you. And I'll see you on the other side.